once again, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Sylvia. I'm Vera. I'm Alex. I'm Crystal. I'm Matt. And we are so thrilled to have you with us uh, once again. I want to remind everyone that yes, indeed, you may have seen it on your favorite podcast platform, but all of our past episodes are finally available for the listening. Uh, It has been several years since we've been back to this regularly, but we've recently come across this program on our computers called Zoom. (laughs) Perhaps you have heard of it. If not, it allows us to see and speak to one another, even though we're not physically in the same space. And it's really facilitated our discussions of the Harry Potter canon. So we're thrilled to be with one another and thrilled to be with you. I do want to give a shout out very quickly to the island nation of Anguilla, where the Harry Potter Book Club podcast was number one on the charts in all arts-related podcasts. Anguilla, we love you. Wow. We love you. We don't know where you Uh, are, but we love you. (laughs) Yeah. Who knew that actually making our past episodes available would shoot us up the podcasting charts? Uh, We were actually in the top 200 in tons of nations around the world. Uh, We don't take that lightly. Uh, Those of you who have been with us from the beginning, you know that this started Uh, as uh, exactly what it's called, a book club between six friends who just love talking about Harry Potter. Maybe you can hear from the tone of our conversations that we don't take ourselves that seriously. It still really is just a book club between six friends, but we're thrilled that you can be uh, coming along for the journey with us. Uh, And we're we're so uh, thankful uh, and humbled to have so many listeners who have decided to pull up a chair, uh, put in some earbuds, grab their nearest Harry Potter book, and join us. Uh, Remember, you can always get in touch with us at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at hpbcpodcast. This week, we are on Chapter 7 of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Mudbloods and Murmurs. Chapter... Um, so we, we, we just got finished kind of talking about how Gilderoy is a fraud at the end, or they think he, he might be a fraud, whatever he says, he's done these things. We don't know if we trust that. And then we get into this new chapter and we hear there's a, there's a little more mischief going on with Ron's wand. And what has happened in this chapter is that in charms class, His his, uh, wand malfunctions and shoots out of his hand and hits tiny old Professor Flitwick squarely between the eyes, creating a large throbbing green boil where it had struck. And so the issue that I have here is that the teachers have now seen two pretty severe instances of, of Ron's dangerous wand and there's about to be another one deeper in the chapter and i get that his parents don't have a lot of money i get well, that they don't, they don't but, even know yet right i mean he he is too right. scared to tell them yes but i think at this point this is where you write home and say please send your child another wand he is harming others yeah um or 
you know, a place like Hogwarts has got to have, like, they've got school brooms. There's got to be some, you know, oh, we've got, you know, a closet full of, of old junkie wands that are not great, but are not broken and harming people. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can use this one, Ron, until your parents can ship you another one. And I like, it just, it's never occurred to me before, but when I read it this time, I was like, this is really dangerous. (laughs) And I feel like authority should have stepped in at this point. Well, also listening back to some of our older podcasts, we talked about in, I think the, either earlier in this book or Sorcerer Stone about there being, there had to be some sort of fund for parents who can't send their children to school because of financial constraints. So why not? Why aren't we tapping into this (laughs) for this sort of scholarship? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, and Vera, your, your fears about the danger of Ron's wand will be legitimated by the end of this book. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's actually a permanently dangerous uh, weapon in the wrong hands. And we've already seen that, well, and we will see by the end of this chapter that Ron is more than willing to try spells that he, he has no business attempting to cast. Right. And I know it is a plot device and it's kind of a thread throughout. And if it just broke like right at the end, then maybe we wouldn't have the build we do. But it just is a little bit unrealistic to me that it causes so much havoc in the beginning and isn't dealt with. So... The devil's advocate would say, the wand chooses the wizard, Vera. So we see in later books that one can still use another wand. And couldn't it though be kind of Hogwarts justice to make him use a really terrible wand because he made a really terrible choice? Like I could see that kind of being a Hogwartsian justice, Mm -hmm. uh, even if others are harmed, meh kind of kind of in happened before that's what madame pomfrey's for (laughs) (laughs) she can fix this no i agree with you i i i think even as i was doing the devil's advocate i think that later books show that one does not have to have the one that chose you in order to do magic in a perfectly serviceable if not spectacular way yeah um but at this point, I think there's at least um, we've had introduced, you know, the sort of answer to the objection that uh, the wand has to choose the wizard. And the, the exception to that rule hasn't been revealed yet in the plot of book two. Also, this is not Ron's original wand. This was Charlie's hand-me-down wand. So he's already using a wand that doesn't belong to him. Yeah, that's Who true. Knows this wand did not been. choose him, Trevor. Yes. It chose Charlie. Yeah, well, or I, it that explains a lot him. about Ron's wizarding acumen thus far. <laughs> <laughs> also, though, can they tell the difference then between the Weasleys? Maybe the wand? Maybe it worked well enough in the past because the Weasleys are all kind of similar. You can use any wand. You can, I think it says you can, yeah. any instrument, really. Uh, if you have enough talent, you can use any. Isn't that what they say? I think so. But, you know, I think there's also, I can't remember who says it in the books, but there's like, it doesn't have the right feel to it. You know, like once you're, you're comfortable with your wand. Where you wand, don't get as good of cho- results. Yeah, it's chosen. Something. I mean, 
I guess an exception would be the elder wand. I mean, we obviously have not gotten to that where it changes its allegiance, you know, depending on who quote unquote owns it, you know, um, who has bested the, the, the previous yeah. master, but I think I even well, yeah, we can't go there yet. I don't think I know. Yeah. Not elder wand, but I think even the same thing happens with the wand that, um, Harry gets from Malfoy because he takes it to Ollivander and he's like, can I use this wand? And he says that he senses the wand's allegiance has changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's the same sort of thing. They do kind of, you know, whatever shift their loyalties, I guess, mm-hmm. or they can. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So I guess next, moving through the chapter, Harry's asleep. Um, he's spent a lot of days trying to dodge Lockhart, but he's awoken by the captain of the Gryffindor Quidditch team, Oliver Wood. And apparently there's an impromptu practice that they're getting up at the crack of dawn. Um, and Harry needs to get up and be there in 15 minutes. So Harry gets up and is met by Colin Creevy on the stairs. Just can't get away from the kid. Which I, I had a question here about whether or not, I mean, I know they said 15 minutes and perhaps that was meant to be a little bit squishy, but is that even physically possible to get from the Gryffindor rooms to the Gryffindor common room down at least what, four flights of stairs? I mean, get to the he has the main entrance. 2000 slung over his shoulder. I mean, just pop open the window. You know, but he down. doesn't do that, right? But he, he doesn't, doesn't do like, he is walks. it yes? Okay, is there a more direct route? Sure, yeah, but I did find I wondered that same thing whether or not he could actually get there in 15 minutes, yeah, because the pitch is decently far away from you yeah. know the grand entrance or whatever. Well, and my question was the one that Fred and George were asking Does Oliver not announce? Mm-hmm. When practice times are going to be 15 minutes before on uh, Saturday morning at the crack of dawn seems awfully last minute to let your star players know that practice is happening. And also, yeah. like, I understand how he's going into the, the, the boys side and waking Harry up, but also for the female players on the team. Right. Well, is, is he just going in their room and like, he can't. Hey, wake up. you can't, you can't even get up the stairs. Yeah. Well, then how's he waking them up? I don't know. Uh, maybe there's a special privilege for Quidditch team captains. I don't think so. That doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't. I don't like that. On many levels. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, there has to be an explanation here for how Maybe they were able to Maybe he sent an up. owl to their window or something. Perhaps. Yeah, but, okay, owls don't normally go, anyway, point out. Yeah, but we, but we, get, the, we get the sense, though, that Wood is unhinged because of what happened um, at the end of last year, which we don't find out at the end of the last book. This is new information for us now. Right. That because Harry was unconscious in the hospital wing, they lost the final match and Be- therefore the Quidditch Cup. Because they had to play Without down a, seeker, a player. Which is crazy. So so when, when we're saying that, you know, oh, it's crazy for Oliver Wood to get his star players up, his only players, there's nobody else. Yeah. This is the whole crew. They, they no- do talk, though, about having reserve players, but they did not have a reserve seeker in year one. Well, yeah. Well, and also as as dangerous as Quidditch is, I mean, like, how could you possibly not have reserve players? I don't know. No. I mean, people are getting hurt all the time 
I mean, well, I, Harry's getting well, Harry's getting hurt all the time. Yeah, but a lot of people they talk about how dangerous it is as a game and how people will like disappear and and all that weird nonsense that we talked about earlier. But I I just think it's so great. Like Alex was saying, there's no subs, there's no reserve players, and there's no like contingency for this. Like if you're down a player, we'll postpone the game. No, you have to play down a player. We'll just see how you do. Which just to me sounds like it incentivizes harming the other team's players <laughs> yeah <laughs> or at least you know more than that. Least, i mean it's you know, like giving them the slug spell you know right before the game that way they can't <laughs> you know there's all kinds of ways to get a player out of a game i have to say i mean that. i i'm certain fred fred and george could think of numerous ways oh yeah, oh, yeah. i have to this is skipping ahead a tiny bit but because we're talking about it it's, it's a good segue I don't understand how they suffered their worst defeat in 300 years simply by being down someone to catch a snitch because 300 years is a long time. And you have to imagine that they've lost by more than 150 points before. And that's all Harry ever earns. He literally adds nothing else. He doesn't defend. He doesn't score goals. How is this their worst defeat just simply by being down Harry? Yeah, it does seem pretty rough that like, I guess they they mean that game, right? Not like the season yeah, that, as a whole. That game. That's really yeah. bad. Like the other players must have also played but, really but, Yeah, but even, yeah, well, I think to your point, Crystal, like what she's saying is a seeker can only add 150 points yeah. no matter so they had what. To lose by, would it have even mattered if Harry had been there to catch the snitch if they were losing so badly? Yeah. I mean, I guess if he could have ended the game early, maybe, but I, I don't know. That just doesn't even... Crystal, I think you are overlooking... The importance of morale. <laughs> and I think having a team member who's like in the hospital, like suffering, distracts everyone. You know, he's obviously a very charismatic character. Mm-hmm. A lot of people like Harry on the Gryffindor team. Also, right? I mean, piggybacking on this, uh, this is something that uh, Colin Creevy had said. You know, I mean, basically saying, oh, you're the youngest player in 100 years, you know, to be on the Critch field. And I just started thinking practically, like, yeah, I think she's trying to, to write this in as if we're talking about, like, this is the, the soccer pitch or, you know, for our European listeners, you know, this is the football pitch here. And how are there not, if he is the youngest player in 100 years and he's apparently this prodigy that's really good how are there not scouts lined up, you know, getting him on Quidditch teams, giving him all kinds of offers, you know, free gear, stuff like that. I just thought about this practically, you know, like, I mean, because we know there are professional teams, you know, other than yeah, like the are. national teams. Yeah. Like Victor Crumb is still in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, yeah. there are scouts that yeah. are going to so schools how, and watching Quidditch Harry, matches and we don't see anybody come to Hogwarts. Yeah, how does how does Harry not get any notice at all? Y'all, I can't see Dumbledore letting that happen. Like, he's not going to let that commercialism in and take little Harry and, you know, capitalize on that. I, I just don't think Dumbledore, I think at, you know, Crumb School with Karkaroff, it's like, whatever. But I just, I think Dumbledore is the protector there of the, of the children. Well, maybe it does not. Seem- Go ahead, girl gonna say it does seem like for older players like for sixth years seventh years it does seem like that would be okay to like have scouts come yeah, in like this is after you're done at school you could have a future here this is their future you know yeah. and, you know i i assume it's similar to the ways you know like you know 
players are recruited in high school, you know, here. I mean, it's just for college teams. People know, you know, they're they're writing letters, there's conversation back and forth. And well, apparently you're making a lot of assumptions. <laughs> well, my I mean, I, he's the youngest player in a hundred years, presumably because he's really, really good. You know, yeah. I mean, he's been told he's really good. So how is there nobody that's like, hey, hey, Harry, come on, like we'd love for you, a famous person, to, to join yeah. our Quidditch team. Yeah, right. Even Sylvia, just for the notoriety. Yeah. Sylvia had a good point though, because this Dumbledore did leave Harry in an abusive, neglectful sort of situation for 10 years to protect him from fame. So yeah. I don't think he's going to let And when he finds Rita Skeeter in the closet with Harry, Dumbledore is furious at that sort of exploitation of the media uh, or by the media of Harry. Like I just think of how mad he was in that moment. Okay, I will cool. say maybe within That's the very good point. itself, within the school, like, yeah, I mean, Dumbledore can keep everybody away. But when Harry's at home over the summer, man, there's got to be some scouts that are like itching to come up and knock on the door and just, you know, hand him a letter. Here's some food. Oh, surely no know. one knows where okay. the Dursleys live. That that can't possibly be like published knowledge. Okay, but but you know where everybody's everybody's gotta know. The way you get to Hogwarts, the King Cross Station. Dude, the wizard press is just like waiting on the. I mean, on the platform. Where, that's what I would do. I would be. I would just wait on the platform and then wait till I spot the the guy with the scar on his face. I mean, like that's my guy. Here we go. <laughs> Don't you guys just think, Mister Potter? Is, this is one of the artifacts of a wizarding universe that is growing up as the story and the characters are growing up. Like there's a way that we can talk about it from within the story mm-hmm. that Dumbledore wouldn't let it happen or scouts would be knocking on. But there's also like from the author's perspective, like we're on book two and we know that the wizarding universe gets increasingly complex as Rowling's plot develops. Uh, and so my thought is just from an author's perspective, unless she's going to be like Tolkien and spend decades developing languages and cultures and histories before mm-hmm. writing the stories. Inevitably, there's going to be plot holes like this, where yes. like the, the Hogwarts version of NCAA sanctions <laughs> and the rules about scouting and, uh, you know, uh, players not owning their image and likeness, which is a, a big thing. And uh, college sports right now and the ability for players to profit off of that. Um, you know, that's that's just probably the furthest thing from the author's mind as she's developing a coherent narrative where the mythology of the Chamber of Secrets and all of the surrounding uh, structure has to be developed in a couple hundred pages that are written at the level where middle schoolers can, oh, yeah. can follow. Well, we can move on. I just, when I read that and, and Colin Creevy pointed that out, I was like, how is he not getting any type of sports deal out of this? You know, I mean, because we know there are more professional teams, you know, he could move on in this, but there's not a word. But anyways, let's move on. Let's, let's, let's get going. Well, speaking of Colin Creevy, he is presenting Harry with this uh, black and white photo of uh, Harry and Lockhart. And I, I loved that. Harry um, was trying to, I guess he says he was putting up a fight, refusing to be dragged into view, which we've talked, I think maybe recently, I don't know, I've listened to all the episodes, so it's, they're all blurring together now, but um, 
we've talked in the past about the consciousness of photos and portraits. And so I, I wondered what you guys thought of this, where Harry is in this picture, his personality and feelings toward Lockhart are coming out in the way this photograph is presenting itself. So what, what did you guys, I'm sure we all well, bookmarked this. Well, for the listeners, just so they know, I mean, it's a black and white photo of Lockhart tugging hard on Harry's arm. Uh, and Harry's tugging as hard as he can, trying to get out of the frame. So that's what we're looking at in this photo. And go on. You said that. I, I want everybody else's opinion. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. Um, and it raises all sorts of questions about the ability of these moving photographs to reveal the true intentions of the people within them, mm -hmm. which... You know, it's like if you're in a relationship that you want to get out of and you're thinking about breaking it off and, you know, the other person says, hey, let's take a selfie. When they look at that, are they going to see you like keeping them at a safe emotional distance, even though you were putting on a smile before? Or does the picture only reveal the emotions that you were intentionally foregrounding? Mm -hmm because Harry wasn't trying to hide his disgust at Lockhart. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it raises some interesting questions about <laughs> how much is actually revealed if your true psychology ends up showing up in the moving film and, and photo that results. Well, I thought it gave um, maybe a, at least the possibility of a theory for Dumbledore's portrait and his consciousness um, after he dies. I thought, you know, when was this portrait taken of him and what sorts of things was he putting forth so that, you know, later when that portrait is hanging behind the headmaster's office, he could communicate with, uh, with Snape, with Phineas Nigellus. Um, he, I mean, he was speaking with a lot of people um, in his portrait. So I, I, I thought that this opened a lot of it, it made a lot of ideas come to mind. That's interesting though, because it seems the portraits have a level of consciousness that normal photographs do not have. Yes. Because Phineas Nigellus is snarky mm -hmm. and sassy mm -hmm. and able to be affronted and offended. And I mean, they, they've got the capacity of speech. I mean, they can interact. I mean, we see that with the fat lady um, in, in her portrait in front of the Quidditch common room. Um, and in others as well. So yeah, I mean, when you start, again, we do this often, listeners in this podcast, digging into the mechanics of the magic in the wizarding world. Uh, but yeah, those are really puzzling questions. It makes you wonder if there's an, a deep logic to what's going on with those photographs and then with portraits. Mm -hmm. what, con what controls and limits are there on the ways that those, that consciousness can be expressed. Mm -hmm. If the photographs do describe true intention and not just displayed intention, then the photographs are the most underutilized mm -hmm. method of truth telling. In the, if I recall correctly, there are some limitations on using truth serum, generally speaking, especially on students. So if you could just take their photograph when you ask them a question about something, find out their 
true intention. Would be incredibly useful in a courtroom, I would imagine. It would be <laughs> magnificent. <laughs> Nobody would be able to lie. Yes. But they have Veritas serum, so do they really need this? Well, but that's the thing. If Veritas serum is it's regulated. regulated. But in a courtroom, you'd think that's where they would be allowed to use it. <laughs> I guess so. In general, uh, the, the difficulty there would be Veritas serum will only tell you what the person believes. Not necessarily something happened. that's true, yeah. What they're and that's always the trouble with eyewitnesses in general, but we don't need to get into that. So, uh, after Colin shows him the photograph, they head down to the Quidditch pitch together because uh, Colin won't leave Harry alone, he's really difficult to shake, and also he's very um, pivotal in this next uh, scene of exposition. So, as they're walking together, Colin says, I don't really understand Quidditch, can you explain it to me? And then Harry does. And so we get the rules again. Um, and, you know, she she played it a little bit differently because now it's Harry who's explaining the rules because he's he's the one that understands it. And we've got Colin, who's the outside observer as a uh, muggle-born who's um, hearing about this game for the first time. So if we forgot the rules, now we've got them again. Not that any of us would ever forget the rules of Quidditch after so long reading the story. I think that's interesting. It it really does. It interrupts the flow of the chapter to all of a sudden get, I don't understand Quidditch. Well, son, let me tell you about Quidditch. We begin with four, you know, and, but, you know, like you said, there's, there is a plausible reason because Colin is a first year muggle-born uh, and like Harry in the previous year, he is seeing everything with fresh eyes. It's just interesting how I think it's in the first three books you get these episodes of exposition where Rowling's just hedging her bets that maybe there's, you know, a sixth grader reading book three before they got book one for Christmas. And she's like, I'm just going to help you out and make sure that you understand, you know, when a character says ministry of magic, what's that? Well, here it is. And we, we get the explanation all over again. It's helpful the first time through you know, the 35th time through, it it can read almost like a copy and paste into the, the action. But you got to give her credit. Colin's a first year muggle-born. And so he did need the information. And so I, I suppose it's as smooth a way as you could find uh, to do that sort of thing. But at least they are separated. The, the only way they're separated is Harry's like, okay, I have to go in the locker room. You can't come in here. You know, this is for the team only. And we get a view and we get to see the team. You know, of course, uh, Fred and George are there. Um, we've got all the fellow chasers. Um, we've got Wood. Uh, and so Wood's got, you know, great new plans uh, for uh, great new strategies and training that they're going to do this year so that they can finally win the Quidditch Cup. And you get the sense that like this is the most important thing to Oliver Wood is I mean he's team captain and this is what he's about more important than school like they're gonna win this year and this this brought a couple of questions to my mind first it appears that there's a locker room just for the team and right. while there do seem to be otherwise like men's dormitories and women's dormitories just seems to be the one locker room that everybody's in. 
Yeah. Which I thought was an interesting kind of weird thing. I've never seen that before. Because at least in the movie, it is like a full uniform. It just seems like there would be separate changing rooms. I, I thought guess. those were just robes, though, that they like threw on over. That's, oh, that's true. I he, thought they were. Harry just, was maybe so. I don't. I don't remember what specifically they said in the books. We haven't gotten. I don't remember. Did they mention that in the first book? I don't know, but Harry put on his robes and goes <clears> into <throat> the locker room. Like he put them on in the dormitory. Mm. Yeah. That's true. Then what is the locker for? Well, it never I do says not know. locker room. It just says it's changing rooms. Yeah. It's oh, it says changing rooms. Changing rooms. So they're not, they're just not changing in them. They're getting they're getting pep talks from Okay. Later. Second thought, I was confused by this. Um it occurred to me there just seems to be like the changing room and the pitch, but strength and conditioning like where where's the exercise equipment of any kind you know or um you know anything for for uh, physical drills or you know any the just all the stuff that are like basics for just general physical performance athleticism when we're talking about kids well, I, here. I, we're I not talking about top of line athletes that need to be hyper specialized like these kids they're kids well, you i know? feel like i mean you we don't really get to see that but like it was part of maybe Oliver's training program. You know, they were getting ready to go through drills and they were going to hit it hard. But I mean, I guess, yeah, there's got to be an element of some athleticism, you know, with you got to have hand eye coordination to hit the bludgers. You know, you've got to, you got to have core strength to stay on that tiny broom around, you know, so you got to have a decent arm. I mean, there are elements of athleticism, I think, that are in here. Um, but I think this is one of those points where, again, where I, you know, what I just brought up about, you know, the scouts, we're getting into the weeds once again. Yeah, we got to move on from Quidditch. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I think I think they just do a round on the Peloton broom. <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah. now that I mention it, probably wouldn't be that, you know, Strenuous. difficult. Yeah, not that. Well, I sat on my Peloton broom for 30 minutes and I toured Brisbane, Australia. <laughs> it was great. All right. Well, let's just uh, skip ahead a little bit to uh, they're starting their drills. Um, Ron and Hermione, they come to, to check out, you know, the, the practice. They're eating breakfast. Harry's jealous that he doesn't have any breakfast. And they're starting to, uh, I mean, really, really hit hard on the drills. And then all of a sudden they see the Slytherins coming on. And it, who wants to pick it up from there? I will. Uh, Marcus Flint was even larger than Wood. He had a look of trollish cunning on his face. Hmm. Are that trolls? really bothers me as a friend. Oxymoronic, yeah. maybe? Because trolls are not a cunning group of individuals. Yeah. I actually spend, I, I felt like Alex or maybe Matt, even like I actually did some research on like, are there myths of like wise, cunning trolls? And I could not find any, like the closest I got was like the three Billy goats gruff. And even that troll was outsmarted. Oh. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's kind of what I, that's where my mind immediately went was like the troll under the bridge. And it's all about like this riddle. And so there's like, there's an element of, I guess, 
a cunning troll, you know, where you have to outsmart this troll. That's the only thing I can think of. Alex looks like he's about to explode with excitement. Did you have something well, to say? It was just like mind meld because it sounds like <laughs> that your point about being bothered was, uh, sorry, about the, the phrase trollish cunning was exactly what Vera said. Mm -hmm. And when she said it, my first thought went to the Billy Goods Yeah. Yeah. And it, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. So my my only thought that kind of you know would justify it is that he is a Slytherin and Slytherins are you know identified as as cunning right and so maybe it's tempered by him looking trollish as a because physical. he's even larger than Oliver was yeah. you know but yeah Oliver, he's a big dude and they cast a really unfortunate guy in the movie yeah. and probably gave him fake teeth I don't know it is Britain it's, it's hard to tell but um yeah I mean anyway. if you're the kid that they're like we picked you for and he's like Harry no Goyle <laughs> and then you go and it's like Goyle looked stupider than he actually was and you're like really <laughs> casting director that's what you gave me <laughs> All right, well, we get into it, and uh, there's a little bit of confusion on the pitch because Wood says, I booked the field, and they said, ah, well, wait a minute. We can, uh, we can both share this field, and they have a note from Professor Snape that says he gives the Slytherin team permission to practice today owing to the need to train their new seeker. Okay, but first, how yeah. does Snape have the right to give them permission to take the field if they've booked it? What the heck? I think he's just that. like superseding them because it was just Wood that booked it. It wasn't like a professor or, or anything. He booked it. He booked the field. Surely you have to do that through some sort of I don't I don't. Yeah, I, who's in charge of that? Really. Online booking system. Yeah. Hello, Madam. <laughs> who's Hagrid and Al? We're me. coming down this morning. But yeah, I, I think as a professor, he feels that he supersedes whatever else is in place. And he's like, you guys can have the pitch. I mean, professors have the ability to just deduct points for basically any reason. Yeah. So well, just I obeying are, a professor. There are situations, give... right, where professors write notes to other professors making pretty bold demands. And the other professors acquiesce to the note with the, the signature on it or the request that the other professor has made. So it does seem that there is a, a considerable kind of authority to just what you say goes if, if you're a professor at Hogwarts. Mm -hmm. And another thing before we get into the new seeker, I just love and, and hate the um, description of the Slytherin team. Uh, and Angelina, Alicia, and Katie had come over too. There were no girls on the Slytherin team who mm. stood shoulder to shoulder facing the Gryffindors, leering to a man. They just sound like a bunch of dirt bags. And this, I think just the fact that there are no girls on the team is, I think, necessarily telling mm. of, you know, kind of the type of, of, of um, I guess misogyny that's that's going on in Slytherin as well as like you know there, there's racism we've talked about already that's going on with them and so it's just a lot of prejudice <laughs> in the Slytherin house and we're seeing that come out now towards women as well. So this reminds me of a of a friend in the past who was telling me what house they were in and she said oh yeah I'm in Slytherin and I said you know something like I'm sorry 
And she's like, yeah, why? You know, being in Slytherin isn't automatically bad. And I just, I just sort of looked at her and I was like, have you, have you read the books? <laughs> like, have you read the way that every single Slytherin is described? Even here, it's like trollish, leering, uh, misogynistic, like working out that intimidation factor in order to overpower weaker others. Like there's, no, there's nothing positive here. There's not here, but I will say for all you Slytherins out there, there is redemption coming. Oh, yeah. Don't you roll your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor rolled his eyes. Yeah, for those who could not <laughs> hear the eye roll. <laughs> all right, well, we find out that the seeker is none other than Draco Malfoy. Ba-ba. Yep, Harry's nemesis. Uh, and Harry's also, arch enemy. Arch enemy. And we find out also that uh, Draco's father has made a generous gift to the Slytherin team, giving them all Nimbus 2001s. They're all gleaming and polished. But we forgot that we overlooked saying for uh, again, though, that arch enemy is his arch enemy, not Voldemort. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that's crazy. So what do anyway. we think is motivating Malfoy here? here here's where I yeah, think we, yeah, we can sort of take a deeper step into the psychology of the characters. Because mm -hmm. Malfoy comes out onto the pitch. He's strutting. He's got his daddy's money behind him. And I've got thoughts, but I want to hear from you all. Um, what's, what's go why does Draco Malfoy need to occupy this position? I mean, I think part of it is, you know, he, like we just said, he is the uh, arch enemy slash nemesis of Harry. And like, he cannot have someone in his very own class uh, outdo him like that. I mean, like Harry's already got recognition because he is the boy who lived, you know, but he also was the youngest seeker in a hundred years, you know, so Harry is outdoing Malfoy and Malfoy being from the family that he is, should be the bright shining star of his class in the wizarding world. And so I think that is a partial motivation of, I've got to get, get on this team. You know, it, there's prestige in that. Well, I think coming off of the chapters with Gilderoy Lockhart too, and the, the fame and glory that Malfoy kind of jeers at Harry for having, you know, like, he's got a scar on his forehead. I don't want a scar on my forehead or uh, I don't think that makes you very famous. And then uh, Gilderoy kind of bringing him into the spotlight constantly. It's just Harry gets all the attention and Draco doesn't. And I think that that's really, really hard for him. Um, but then I also referenced back in my notes back to um chapter four at Flourish and Blatz when Harry meets Lucius and Malfoy in Borgen and Burks. And Malfoy says, like, you said you were going to buy me a present. And he says, Lucius says, I was going to buy you a racing broom. And then they go into this conversation about like you, Lucius kind of dogs Malfoy saying, you keep talking about Harry. You've been talking about Harry over and over and over. Like, almost like you're, you're too good to be talking so much about Harry. So even his own father kind of degrades him a little bit for how much he talks about Harry. 
So, and we know how much Draco craves his father's affection. So I think all of those things are at play with Malfoy here. But the biggest thing, uh, Hermione puts her finger on it. She says, they got in on pure talent. And then it says the smug look on Malfoy's face flickered. So he doesn't have the same talent here he does. And that's really, really hard for him. I also, I thought it was, um, it was interesting because I, like when he's kind of flaunting that his father bought these brooms uh, in, in this section. And I thought, you know, for anybody with, you know, kind of like half a brain, you know, it, that's, I mean, what Hermione said, it basically smacks of that, you know, it, it's telling that like, I bought my way onto the team. Why would he be just flaunting like that. flaunting that out there? And then, you know, I thought, well, you know, he, he's, he's also from, you know, like we've said, uh, uh, a hot, what he would consider a high wizarding class family of, of quote unquote pure bloods. And he's talking to Fred and George and, and Ron is there as well. And they are also quote unquote pure bloods uh, uh, in the wizarding world. However, there's a huge financial gap between the two of them. And I thought, you know, perhaps he is rubbing it in the Weasley's faces. That, that's why, you know, he uh, is, is, is showing that like my, my dad did this because he can um, type mentality. But then I thought it was interesting when Hermione, yes, yeah, she puts her finger right on it and says, you know, your daddy basically bought you onto this team. And Malfoy looks at her. And that's when, of course, he gets and he calls her, you know, of course, a mudblood. And it's Hermione is is smarter than anyone else there on the field. But she doesn't even get an opinion because she's not a pure blood. I mean, she he can cast her off with with nothing because she's not a pure blood. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's what I thought. That's kind of how I felt the scene was unfolding anyone else just like a quick side note of the brooms i wanted to see how how much they are approximately mm -hmm. because draco's dad bought seven of them right yes. and this estimation is they're about 200 galleons which is like five thousand us dollars yes. so he bought seven of those to get draco onto the team that's a that's a really big investment yeah. in the Slytherin team. It also speaks to how wealthy the Malfoys truly are. Yeah. Yeah, Crystal, back in chapter four, I'm glad you brought that up at, at Flourish and Blotts. Uh, Lucius says that he was going to buy a racing broom, and Malfoy's comment is, "What's the what's the use if I'm not on the team?" Right. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of planting the seeds for Lucius to then, but then it it moves into a diatribe of Draco's about Harry and Lucius's comment is just like you said, it's you've told me this at least a dozen times already. So we really do have this sense that Dracoy. Dracoy. That's <laughs> that's his celebrity marriage name, Brangelina and Dracoy. Uh, Draco Malfoy. To, to himself. <laughs> well, he's narcissistic enough. Can we agree? Yes. yes. Saved it. Um, Draco understands himself only in comparison to Harry. Mm -hmm. uh, he he has a real kind of obsession with Harry. And I think you're right. I mean, 
the quickest way to remember that Draco is ultimately a sympathetic figure despite his nastiness is to remember his relationship with his father. And all you have to do is revisit some of the biting sentences that Lucius speaks to Draco. And you're like, okay, I see it. I, I see how a wounded son would act the ways that Draco acts in order to get the, the praise and the attention of his father. But it also just, rem I mean, Draco needs to be on the team. He gets his dad to buy his way on the team. Not only that, but he has to inhabit the position of seeker and to be a young seeker at that. He's just walking in the footsteps that Harry has already trod. And it just reminds me that envy is always derivative. What I mean by that is that jealousy looks at what someone else has and then tries to create a life on the basis of that person. It's parasitic. There's nothing creative, there's nothing original, there's nothing free about Draco's existence. He has to do what Harry has already done. And, and that's what I mean by derivative. His vision of the good life is derivative of what Harry has and what Harry is. And he is, in a sense, trapped by Harry insofar as he's envious of Harry and needs to possess what Harry already possesses. Um, and so even though the first time through it's intended to be sort of a shock that is this sort of light kind of outrage like how dare he I can't believe he bought himself onto the team mm -hmm. it becomes on further reflection quite tragic uh, because there are all sorts of uh, all sorts of people um, who live in this mode of existence, who are so occupied and obsessed with envy that they cannot help but lead fundamentally derivative lives that are never original, never creative, never truly life-giving, but always seeking after the thing that somebody else already has so that they can fit the mold that somebody else has already set. And, and I think, there's something profound there about the danger of um, constant comparison that we can very easily lose sight of ourselves the way that Draco has. His, his vision is ultimately to simply be like Harry, not to be Draco, but to be Harry. Well, I think that's um, a, a commentary more. I mean, I think this whole chapter just kind of puts on display, not so much what a bad faith kind of character Malfoy, Draco Malfoy is, but what a bad faith kind of character Lucius Malfoy is because Draco's like 12 years old here and he's just parroting what he's heard his whole life. So I even, I even thought that if we saw someone like a 12 year old, now that we're all much wiser adults, if we saw a 12 year old, you know, calling someone this awful name Mudblood or, you know, some sort of equivalent in our society, we would not, we would pity the child and blame the parent, <laughs> which is, I think, exactly what we should be doing here with Malfoy. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it just strikes you like, I mean, when you read kind of what he said, he said he spat it out, but it's you filthy little mudblood. I mean, like, just imagining that coming from someone's lips, you know, mudblood doesn't quite hit us the same way as 
other words, you but know, it's supposed, and, and real, to. it's supposed to, but, you know, you insert, you know, you filthy little, you know, and then insert the word, you know, that, that hurts, you know, or, or carries a lot of meaning to, you know, those of you out there. And I mean, like what he said is, I mean, in, is, is hugely degrading. I mean, yeah. I mean, telling someone a filthy little, whatever, filthy you know, little anything yeah, really is, is just degrading, but you know, in the wizarding world, mudblood is a name yeah. that you are not supposed to use. And yeah. so it's incredible that he's using this and I yeah. obviously very hurtful. Right. What I really love about this sequence is that it's like, it's, it's kind of a, a mirror of what happened in Flourish and Blots with Lucius and Arthur. Yeah. This is just like immediately the sons have turned around and done the same thing because this attack is based on the same thing. So Lucius insulted Hermione's parents mm-hmm. um, as, as muggles. And then, and then, you know, Ron's dad, Arthur just jumped him and that's it. And then a fist fight and flourish and blows. And this is the same thing happening here. Lucius is repeating his father's behavior and calling Hermione a name now. And Ron's not standing for it immediately attacks Malfoy and steps in the way. And obviously it goes awry, but the intention was there. He meant to attack Malfoy. And it's just seeing these two sons living out, you know, the same thing that they've seen portrayed by their father so quickly after it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, and to add on to that, there's another layer because at Borgen and Burks, um, there's a passing comment um, that Lucius says that if Draco's grades don't pick up, being a thief may indeed be all he is fit for. And Draco protests, it's not my fault. The teachers have a favorite and it's Hermione Granger. And then Malfoy says, I would have thought you'd be ashamed that a girl of no wizard family beat you in every exam. So if we want to tap into the father hunger, the need to be valuable and accepted in his father's eyes, his dad's already planted the seed that Hermione, who is of no wizarding blood, has proved that she's better than you, son. And it's I mean, if you tie a thread from chapter four here to chapter seven, it's almost it's the the dynamics in Borgen and Burks are playing themselves out. Um, that Lucius has pointed out that basically, without using the words, that a mudblood ought not to be beating my son, and now. Draco is lashing out at the mudblood the first chance he gets. And it's almost like there's this pent up resentment. Um, and you, you just wonder what sorts of emotional wounds have been festering uh, for Draco. Granted, we, we know that he holds this philosophy at a conscious level. Um, the, the sort of racialized hierarchy in the wizarding world, Draco's all about it. Uh, but there also seems to be something else uh, working deeply under the surface there. This is also just kind of a perfect example of that quote, I'm sure we've all heard that, you know, hurt people hurt people because Draco spits this back at Hermione right after she kind of hits him where it hurts, which is, you know, he had to buy his way onto the team 
and the rest of the team got in on pure talent. And that's when he loses the smug look and, and calls her a mudblood. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting here is that Ron doesn't actually say eat slugs at this moment. Yeah. That was something he said like two chapters ago. Yeah. Yeah, a chapter ago, something like that. Said it a while ago. Like his wand has been storing this up. Yeah. And now is like, this is the time. I will release this spell. (laughs) And then and then it backfires on him because it does that fun backfire thing that's going to be very important later. Um can I I just interrupt and say the description (laughs) that Rowling has cracks me up every time. Several slugs dribbled out of his mouth onto his lap. She uses the word dribble multiple mm-hmm. times to describe the slugs moving like across, dribbling across his lips into his lap. I just think that is the best word she could have chosen there. And then she changes the description every now and then to say, you know, one tiny slug fell out with his last little burp. And it's like, <laughs> it's, a, it's like a perfectly crafted sentence to communicate the humor, the whimsy, but also the sadness and pathetic nature of Ron's, you know, portrait in this moment. I just, I love the writing in this scene. Yeah. It's, it's such a shame that this had to happen to Ron when he was really trying to be heroic and step in and, and, you know, it's not a good look. Um, But Alex had something about Ron and Hermione here. Yes. To me, this was one of the, this was, I think, potentially the moment that sealed the deal. Because. I think it's way too early. We have have two things that strongly incline one toward affection occurring at the same time. Right. We have the, the sort of heroic, valorous attempt at defense by the other. And that say that Ron steps in and tries to do this thing to defend Hermione's honor. And then also he becomes the sickened victim in need of nursing caretaking. <laughs> so he is he gets to both it's the double be hero and be victim. Um, <laughs> and so he can both be admired for his valor and his courage, and he can also need a bit of tender affection. The night and correct, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a potent combination. Yeah. It's not. It may not be magic. It's somewhat but. tempered by the fact that he's belching slugs, but yeah. Uh, but yeah. Well, okay. He's belching slugs. Let's keep moving it along. And he, they get him to Hagrid's, and Hagrid's the nearest place. We got to get him there. But is Hagrid the right place? I don't know if it's necessarily the right place. Did anybody else nearest. go? No, really, I mean, yeah. Hagrid. Yeah, I think Hagrid was I go a good there? bet. <laughs> Trevor doesn't care. I think Hagrid was a good bet because Ron did try to attack another student. And I think that they know if they go to like McGonagall or Pomfrey or something, she's gonna be like, what happened? I just mean- And Ron can't just be like, my wand blew up. You know, like, I, I guess he could, but you know, he tried to attack Malfoy. That's what happened. And, and then his wand backfired. And so- going to Hagrid and knowing that there's not going to be judgment there, I think is safe. And then Hagrid will help them out with whatever issue they have. 
help him out by just making him continue vomiting up yeah. plug. Here's a bucket. <laughs> um, better out than in. Well, Hermione says, I think there's nothing we can do except wait. Yeah. Really? That's what yeah, Hermione There's no magic we can do? No, no potion, no magic. I, I mean, I eat, sl- eat, eat slugs, to be fair, is, is it's not a, you know, it's not one of those fancy Latinate, like, that. you're not going to learn that in, in the standard book of spells, probably. It's. But Hermione says that's a difficult spell to work at the best of times. Yeah. Did so, she say that? She does. She says that's a difficult spell to work at the best <laughs> of times. Who's so, regularly working eat slugs? That's exactly, that's what I thought. And I thought it was kind of like, like, like said beer where he did tell Malfoy to eat slugs a couple chapters ago so and his wand just like scored that um we get to Hagrid's and Lockhart is there and Harry who both Hermione and Harry are very quick you know to like get him to Hagrid's we got to get him to the nearest place and then all of a sudden Harry says no let's go hide in the bushes Lockhart's here you know so they're off in the bushes don't want to be seen by Lockhart um, so Harry's just feelings of Lockhart, I guess, overwhelm him just in that moment. You know, hey, Ron can wait just a little bit longer. Let's let Lockhart pass. And they go in and Hagrid takes care of him. Which is another instance of Gilderoy approaching a professor, mm-hmm. trying to make friends by telling them how to do their job and how he knows about their subject more than they do. And I think what's interesting here is that he is already resorting to Hagrid, which whom we love, but is not maybe the, uh, the coolest or most popular or most revered professor, as he's not even teaching classes at this point. He's just the groundskeeper at Hogwarts. And so like, that's pretty rough. Already we're there, already we're at Hagrid. I gotta get me a friend because this is, this is bad. Well, I just wanted to point out that Gilderoy is wearing the robes of palest, I can't say this word, mauve, mauve. What's the word? Anybody? Mauve? It's purple. It's either mauve or mauve. Yeah, okay. Well, it's purple, which kind of goes to what we were, purple is, you know, a symbol of royalty. And it kind of goes back to what we were saying in our last episode about him being the gilded king. Uh, I mean, he uses purple. She uses like every type of different purple there is. I think in lilac is his favorite lilac, color. Yeah, I just wanted mauve, to point it out that, yeah, we're still looking toward following that trail of you with the, your color theory should really appreciate this. Uh, yes, I know. I, I do. I really appreciate that Hagrid is once again the voice of truth. Uh-huh. We've commented on that several times um, through the first book and a half, how um, Rowling will put truth in the mouth of characters that you are likely to either go past or be suspicious of and here Hagrid says he was banging about uh, some banshee he banished if one word of it was true I'll eat my kettle so we've got Hagrid giving a very severe declaration of his lack of trust of Lockhart we've already had that with Ron in each case though you can sense that it's sour grapes. Perhaps Hagrid's just offended that Lockhart came down and tri- attempted to 
to tell him how to do his job about getting Kelpies out of a well. By the way, I looked it up. Kelpies are shape-shifting water demons, which is more dramatic than I expected from the name Kelpie. But we've got this sense that maybe maybe Hagrid's just offended, and that's why he doesn't try. But no, Hagrid, just like Ron in the previous chapter, has a beeline read on the falseness of Gilderoy Lockhart. Uh, and yet again, uh, Rowling is telling us the truth about the developing plot before we get there, but she's, she's sort of testing us. Who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust Hermione, who's literally right about everything? Or are we going to trust uh, the guys who may have some salty reasons for being suspicious of Lockhart? Mm-hmm. This is, I think, the first we hear of the Defense Against the Dark Arts job potentially being jinxed. Because Hermione says, you know, Dumbledore obviously thought that Lockhart was the best man for the job. And still, Hagrid says... Still under his spell. Yeah, she is still under his spell. She and and Hagrid says he was the only man for the job. It's getting very difficult to find anybody. And here it is not mentioned that Snape wanted the position. Mm-hmm. I can't remember when we find that out. Um, but here it does, it is at least intimated to Harry that nobody wants this job except for Gilderoy Lockhart. Why does Gilderoy want this job? Any thoughts? Growing his fan club. Growing his fan club. I also think like he's still in a collecting mode. You know, I mean, part of being famous is you have to continually, you know, do something new. You know, you can't drift out of, you know, I think he says later in the the chapter, fame is a fickle friend, you know, like you've got to continually feed that monster. So, you know, I, I did see, you know, I, I do appreciate what you guys are saying when he says, okay, he has to, to kind of walk down the rungs of the ladder, you know, to, you know, meet with Hagrid and be like, he's, you know, he's meeting with, you know, not necessarily the brightest tool in the shed, but like, I also think there's something in this, he's going to every teacher and he's almost as if collecting, he's, uh, he's trying to find his next book, his next story. Um, and so he's probably... I, this this could be reading into it, you know, too much. I don't know, but like it's it's almost like he's slithering around, you know, trying to find his next victim, uh, you know, because he's obviously the living basilisk, like we said in, in last podcast. I mean, it is it's so convenient for him that there does end up being like a very powerful magical creature set loose in this school. Mm-hmm. which is a great story for him to try to steal, yeah. but he doesn't know that. Yeah. And so like, why did he come? I, and I wonder if it's because, you know, the word has gotten out about what went down with the Sorcerer's Stone. And he thinks that now that Harry Potter is at Hogwarts, maybe some bigger stuff is going to go on. Yeah. And I could take credit for that if I'm around. Yeah. You know, I don't know. That's just a... Well, there's also incredible wizards there there's Dumbledore McGonagall you know I mean and so there are there's some people there that he could steal their stories steal their life I mean so I I think I personally I thought he was fishing you know he's just in a different pond fishing now this is a question I never asked um 
But my first thought was it's the compl- it's the last place on earth you would want to go. The only way to keep up the fraud is to keep a safe distance from people. And here he's thrust himself into a situation where his incompetence is on full display for everyone. Like literally class one with second year students, he's hiding from Cornish pixies. McGonagall, by the end of it, is going to have some sick burns about Gilderoy Lockhart because she sees through him as well. So the the farce is going to be up because he's not kept the distance required in order to keep on pretending. But I really like that idea about fishing for stories. Uh, I had never thought of it that way, that in order to keep on building his fame, he has to keep on taking the narratives of other people. Uh, and so that's actually a really, that's one of those plausible suggestions mm-hmm. that that fits with the sort of trajectory of his character as we know it. That's really interesting to consider, especially since Dumbledore is around. And if Gilderoy Lockhart believes that he's as good as he, he says that he is, um, at least when it comes to casting memory charms, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe Albus Dumbledore is his white whale. Yeah. Well, he's obviously. I really not... do think. Go Sorry, ahead. go ahead, Matt. Uh, I was just gonna say he's uh, he's obviously yes very good at somehow sneakily you know getting in these charms because I mean presumably he's around like really powerful witches and wizards uh, that are very that are you know able to handle themselves very well going up against all kinds of ferocious creatures. And some, and he's not them, you know, so somehow he's able to either gain their trust or when their back is turned or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, and maybe he can think, oh, I've done it with all these other powerful witches and wizards. I can do it with Dumbledore as well. So, well, he does actually say, I'm trying to find the exact quote, but he does actually say when they're down in the Chamber of Secrets that he was always incredibly gifted at memory charms. So this is an actual talent of his. Yeah, like yeah. this is where he succeeds. Well, he, like the not, only one. He's not like you know, you got your back turned. I'm gonna cast it. It's like he's gifted. Well, he's it. gifted, but I'm saying at what point you know, like he cannot just disarm a wizard and then be like, "Ha ha! I've now vanquished you. You're they're helpless. Now I'm going to cast well, this we memory about charm." How dangerous his good looks are, though. Well, I know. Well, that he that he's using his other non-magical yeah means about his other charisma. Yeah, to, to gain yeah. access. Yeah. To well, I mean, we talked we talked in the last episode about how he is this sort of beautiful predator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think that, like you said, Matt, fishing at a school. So there's a lot of these young, talented witches and wizards who are already, you know, sort of geared toward, at least the girls are, geared towards uh, revering him. Yeah. Um, how easy would it be to to manipulate them into trusting him steal their story take it from my end you know and 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 so much less protection on on the children than on the professors and i feel like it it's so quickly he focuses on harry because harry's already famous and big stuff is happening to harry now that he's back in the wizarding world Mm -hmm. and i really feel like he's focused his energy on that and he's just waiting for something to happen to harry that he can steal Mm -hmm. now in the end he loses his nerve 
because he can't like stick around and wait to see what happens. He ends up having to go there, but he, I feel like that's what he's waiting for. Yeah, it's interesting. Lockhart attempts to move undetected inside the walls of Hogwarts. Like another predator. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to push this as far as we can because I think it's fantastic. I I actually think that it's legitimate. I I I mean, Lockhart, just like the Basilisk, we don't know. I mean, for chapters upon chapters, how is this beast popping up out of nowhere? Because he's moving through the school undetected. uh, And Lockhart's doing the same thing. And we already established, established in our last episode that his MO is the same that he captures people by their gaze. Um, and so it's, yeah, I think we've got Lockhart as human basilisk all over again. Brilliant. Well, does anybody have anything else to say about Hagrid and their meeting in the hut? Yes, well, it's in the behind of the hut, but we hear that Jenny Weasley has been sneaking around his cabin, which at this point we know that Jenny is possessed or at least being influenced by Tom Riddle's diary Mm -hmm. and in order for the basilisk to move around undetected uh, she has to like strangle some roosters or something am I remembering Mm -hmm. so I don't know if she's scoping out I thought that the roosters were about the the blood on the wall it's some I can't remember exactly but it's something I think that was the message but uh, she is she's scoping out the uh the grounds for whatever reason and uh we're we are led to believe that it's by Hagrid that it's she's looking for Harry around Hagrid's hut because she is part of the Harry Potter fan club she has a crush on Harry so we can overlook that little detail that she's been sneaking around looking but this is our first clue that Jenny Weasley is the one who's setting the basilisk free and there is a half-plucked rooster in this scene also there is yeah so that's that's a little easter egg I was just looking furiously for it because I remember reading it that he had to move a a half-plucked rooster off of his table as he was doing something so we've got yeah little clues about the action that's going along here I was intrigued by the the mention of uh, Hagrid's umbrella, which led to uh, the memory of Hagrid being expelled, Mm -hmm. which draws an unspoken line to the narrative of the Chamber of Secrets, of course, uh, and his friendship with Tom Riddle in the past when Hagrid was accused. I'm still not over the fact that there was not justice for Hagrid after it's revealed that he is not uh, the person responsible for for this so many years ago. But that's neither here nor there. For now, we just have mention of the pink umbrella, which draws us to uh, the fact of his expulsion and the fact that he's not supposed to be doing magic. And so, yeah, it's just amazing to me how well-crafted even a chapter like this can be with Ginny coming around, which establishes the romance angle with Harry, but also the possession of Tom Riddle, that the half-plucked rooster, the umbrella with the story of the past, all of the connections come together in this beautiful sort of tapestry. And when you, when you read it with eyes like we have that know the full story and then can go back, 
you can really appreciate just how intricate all of these little details are. I also just want to point out with this umbrella, because we find out that Hagrid's wand was snapped, but then he has put this wand in this umbrella and somehow it is able to produce some form of magic because we've we see Hagrid I can think off the top of my head at least three spells that we've seen Hagrid perform or we will see him perform so how is it that Ron's wand that which has been snapped and put together with spillotape tape does horrible magic but Hagrid seems to at least do basic magic well I think Dumbledore's got to be behind it well, this is all speculation. If we don't speculate, what's what's the... Like, if we don't speculate, oh, Dumbledore probably fixes... Well, you know we can't fix the wand. Yeah, but mended it to do simple things. I mean... Yeah. I, you know, well, Ron's is recently broken, and, like, he's, he's too scared to write home about it, and nobody's giving him another wand, so... His is going to be broken, so we're seeing the worst of what a wand can do. Yeah. But, you know, Hagrid's had decades now to come up with a solution for his broken wand and i mean it, yeah you're it's all speculation of like how did that get fixed i don't think we we know but. to me it's frustrating though because hagrid's wand shouldn't work any better than ron so unless we do you know steps and we can speculate all these things but unless we do speculate them like his his wand shouldn't work either well unless Real quick so, oh what yeah. what are the three spells that you think that he's done um, I, he, he did something with the boat in book one. Like he made the uh, boat go across the right. water. He has done something with these uh, pumpkins. Uh, and then in book six, he puts out his cabin with water, Aguamenti. Those are the only three I can think didn't of. Didn't he also like, and this could the be, fire. Yeah, I was going to say the fire. That could be the movie, you know, me blending yeah, I mean, it too. I, yeah, but, I, I'm, I, I'm sure there are more. I, those are just the only three I could think of very quickly. But so my, my first thought was Dudley's piggy tail. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So th those were the three that I I thought you were talking about up to this point was piggy tail, propulsion across the water, and then obviously an engorgement char charm on the pumpkins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I just happened to think Dumbledore has the elder wand. That's well. That's what was I was getting ready to say. That was like if only so someone fixed, who had the elder wand. He probably could... fixed Hagrid's wand. Yeah. Hey, I'm on Harry Potter wiki. Let's do it. Although the wand was destroyed, Dumbledore allowed him to secretly keep the shards of his wand in the shaft of a pink umbrella as the shards still possessed a good portion of the wand's original power. However, since he never graduated, Hagrid's magic was never flawless. So even though he was able to use the pink umbrella as a wand substitute, he did not have the skill required for complex feats of magic. Mm, okay. But that's implying that the umbrella is the source with which he's performing magic, not the wand concealed in the umbrella, correct? Well, he's I mean, the umbrella and uses it. But but yeah. what Vera just read does not say anything about the wand being inside the umbrella, right? Yes. It does. Yeah, this is okay, like the very first that. thing she said. Okay, I missed that. Sorry. Shards, Shards of, of his wand in the shaft of a pink umbrella. Okay. Hmm. I don't know. I'm gonna. So once again, if only we knew where the elder wand was and we had, you know, whoever that person is could fix it. That's what I, that in my head. it was a friend of Hagrid's, then maybe he could have mended that wand, but otherwise. Yeah. In my head, that's what's happened. Is I'll be banging this drum for probably years, knowing the rate that we're going. <laughs> but 
by chapter one of book three, Hagrid should have a fully functional wand. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, he has been restored to like being able to be a professor. So some kind of redemption comes for Hagrid, but he should have been cleared entirely. Yeah. yeah. There needed to be restitution in addition to vindication. That is maybe, what justice requires. Maybe it's like the Quidditch situation. They just don't do exonerations in the wizarding world. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, we made a judgment. Oh, it was wrong. Harry oh, is well. exonerated though in book five. Oh, you're right. <laughs> they do do that. There's... Maybe they don't do it for... Uh, they know. only do it for Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, they only do it for Harry Potter or they don't do it for, for half giants or whatever other discriminatory reason they <laughs> that leave F off Hagrid. Because I mean, I totally agree, Trevor. It's, it's ludicrously unjust, but... Um... Yeah. Does oh. anyone else have anything about Hagrid's hut? Their conversation. Yep. Um, okay, so on, you turn the page. Okay, here we go. So I uh, I thought it was really interesting that Ron is the one who explains mudblood as a term. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just had forgotten that because again I'm so used to the movies, and Hermione is the one who explains it there, and it's so different coming from her from the one oh, yeah. who it was used on, right? Yeah. Um, but in here, she's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know what he said. Yeah. And then Ron explains the whole thing to her, the whole setup of the prejudice. And he really understands it. It's not just like, oh, it's a bad word. We're not supposed to say. My mom says it's a bad word. You know, he knows why this is not okay. And he t- talks at length about it while coughing up slugs and about how, you know, the, the rest of us know it doesn't make any difference at all. Yeah. But families like the Malfoys still think there's something important about pure blood. Even though Ron is a pure blood wizard, his family is just not holding stock in this. And this is the line that we've talked about several times already, where Ron says, most wizards these days are half blood anyway. If we hadn't married muggles, we'd have died out. So Ron, the pure blood, quote pure blood, He's just said there's no such thing as a pure blood. But if there is a pure blood, Ron's a pure blood. And he's saying that this is all sort of mythical. It's it's made up that just the logistics of survival in the wizarding world, given the history of this uh, sort of narrative universe, um, we had everybody is ultimately half blood. There's no such thing as a pure blood. But also it. I think this was the first time I ever just sort of sat and thought about the the deep metaphor, the imagery of mud blood. And Ron says it, dirty blood, see? Like there's this, it's it's this notion that pollution is running through your veins. You are corrupted at the very core of your being. Your blood, I mean, think about it. We sitting here talking, and you listening, unless you like consciously think about it, you're not aware of your blood. You don't feel it. You didn't make a decision about it, but it's part of you. In, in some ways, it's, it's at least physically speaking, it's almost like the, the, the innermost part of you. And yet this notion that your blood is mud, it's not even blood, that it's dirty and it's defiling at the very subconscious core of your being, there's a profound image there that I think, again, 
it's got this rolling combination of silliness and profundity. Mudblood, it rhymes. It's, al it's almost a silly sounding word. And yet it's, it captures the denigration that's going on in the wizarding world. Um, and I think anybody who's ever felt dirty at the core of their being over something that they can't control um, can identify with the power that this kind of statement would come, especially as a, what, 12-year-old mm -hmm. from a peer? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like, um, I think the rest of the sequence at Hagrid's hut is honestly, like I laughed out loud probably five times reading this. It's so fun. The way it's written is so funny. Um, the rest of the sequence, um, Hagrid, Hagrid wants to say something, or sorry, Harry wants to say something, but he can't because Hagrid's treacle toffee had cemented his jaws together. And then um, Hagrid says, I've heard you've been given out signed photos. How come I haven't got one? And it's like kind of a clever joke to pull for Hagrid because obviously he's kidding. Um, and then uh, Harry gets mad, of course. And uh, Hagrid says, I'm only joking. Patting Harry genially on the back and sending him face first into the table. Like it just, this sequence is really great. And the fact that Hagrid has just... Um, like called out Lockhart for, oh, you know, Harry doesn't need to, to, to hand out signed photos. He's more famous than you are already without even trying. And all of these like little digs at Lockhart, it just, oh, I love Hagrid. He does not care and has no filter. <laughs> I just love the detail that Ron snorts with laughter and the ground near the pumpkin, pumpkins is sprayed with slugs and that Hagrid gets angry and pulls, watch it and pulls him back. And I, I Googled it, slugs do attack pumpkins. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Hagrid's like, okay, I'm caring for my students. Like I'm meeting your emotional needs. Also get your, get your slugs away from my pumpkins. Mm -hmm. Like I've worked hard. These are prize winning pumpkins. I loved the, uh, when they get into the um, entrance hall and McGonagall finds them and tells them they have detention, it says Ron nervously suppressed a burp. <laughs> it was like he was afraid he was going to burp up a slug on McGonagall. <laughs> so well, funny. she, of course, finds them because it's time to dole out their detentions. And I thought, I mean, did anyone else think um, their detentions or their, their separate punishments that they got? I mean, what did you guys think of those? I mean, I have my thoughts, but I was curious what you guys thought about them. So for uh, Ron, it is polishing the silver in the trophy room. And for Harry, it is helping Lockhart with his fan mail. Well, my first thought against them was like in the first book, they go into the forbidden forest to hunt like a dead unicorn. <laughs> so they seem pretty tame. Yeah. Uh, that was, my, yeah, that's all the only thought I had. Yeah. I mean, I... It's, I think when I originally read it, I was like, oh, interesting, you know, two different interesting punishments. You know, they're not just like sitting down and, and having to stare at the wall or whatever. Um, but then 
you know, later we learned they, they are both getting two very important pieces of the plot that we will later have to put together. And so if they don't go to two different things, then we don't get both pieces of the plot. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's interesting. But I, it makes me really angry, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what emotion I have about this. It makes me feel weird about the fact that um, Professor McGonagall tells Weasley that he can't use magic, only elbow grease, and to help um, Filch when all Filch is ever using to be the caretaker of the whole school is elbow grease. Like, yeah, no, you can't use magic. Help this poor man. Somebody else with magic clean the castle. It just like, it just hurts me so much because Filch, as we know, is a squib. And so he, you know, he's using some magical products we see later when we go into his office, but he can't use magic to clean stuff. He's just cleaning stuff. That's a good point. Again, can we just point out that Filch is a perfect example of rolling, hiding a tragically sad scenario under an unlikable sort of, at least at a superficial sense, character. Mm -hmm. Um, We've already talked about how Harry's childhood constitutes child abuse, but it's done under a facade of humor and, and sort of childish narration. Uh, and and Filch, you know, we'll get to more of his character uncovered later, you know, even taking a sort of magic correspondence course, you know, in an attempt to rectify his squibbiness. Um, but he's so unlikable, like so unsympathetic as a character that by the time we hear his backstory, it's almost hard to muster the compassion to care. Yeah. yeah, my first thought was we get to, uh, like uh, like Vera said, that you know, from the writer's perspective, we need two detentions because we've got plot to reveal. We need to get to the trophy room, which is going to uh, uncover, and even the specific trophy, award for special services to the school is mentioned. And we need Harry in a position to be by himself to hear the basilisk. And it's important that he's by himself and not with Ron and Hermione so that he can then narrate it and they can put their heads together and we can sort of puzzle over the mystery for mm-hmm. a chapter or two. Yeah. But also, uh, I think both of these represent things that they absolutely hate. Yeah. Make Ron Weasley polish someone else's trophies when all he's ever wanted is to have a trophy oh, of his own. Think about that. Yeah. Is oh. torture. Yeah, that that's kind of more of the lines of I was thinking is it's like holding up a mirror to their almost deepest insecurities, you know, like, like you just said, Ron wanted, you know, when they looked in the mirror of Erised or what what Elsa read. Erised. said, thank you. Thank you. It's desire spelled backwards. Yes, you're right. You're right. Erised. Like, yeah, he's, you know, he's head boy. He's, he's got the Quidditch cup, you know, there's uh there's you know that that is what he that is his deepest insecurity um but with harry you know like he his insecurity is the um his fame you know he just kind of wants to be a normal wizard Mm. and so he i mean this is one thing that like he's famous you know because he's the boy who lived but he just 
he doesn't like he doesn't want people to be looking at his scar and he's pulling away from that and so that's kind of what i thought you know like when i saw these two it's it's holding up that mirror again in kind of a reverse fashion if you will the mirror of elsa red elsa, elsa red it's uh <laughs> yeah that's something we need to write in pencil it in that's a really good point yeah that's not i like that yeah that it's what Ron desperately wants mm -hmm. and what Harry desperately does not want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they're but they're both intensely personal. And so that, again, you just marvel that that we don't just get an efficiently mapped out plot development, which is of my as I said, my first instinct. We have to go to two places because we need two pieces of plot. But we get efficiently mapped out plot development that that's actually intensely personal and speaks to the deep character that Rowling has already revealed and will continue to develop across the coming books. I just thought it was funny that Ron said, no magic, I'm no good at muggle cleaning. And I thought you're no good at any kind of cleaning because your mom does all the cleaning in your house. Mm. such a lame excuse to not clean really things is. i'm not good at cleaning okay <laughs> um anyway uh so so we go and it, it very quickly the afternoon melts away and it's immediately time for them to go and do their um their detentions just like whenever you're dreading something time flies towards it right so we go to lockhart's office and it is covered in pictures of him um beaming down at him and he says you can address the envelopes like it's a, a huge treat and so one question that alex and i had is um is lockhart personally writing like letters back to his fans because that is a huge undertaking like it's not it doesn't seem like he's just sending signed photos like he's answering fan mail Yes, I, I mean, I definitely got that impression that he was answering fan mail. And I kind of flagged that too, along with the um, him having countless framed photographs with a few of them signed. And I kind of tracked it back to our last podcast where Trevor mentioned that he was kind of like a wizarding sociopath. And I think that's, that this is more of just the proof that he is obsessed with himself he's very narcissistic and even answering fan mail while like as a fan that's a really cool thing to receive a you know a letter back I think it shows how he only can have superficial relationships with people because he couldn't have this type of relationship where he could actually correspond with a friend because they would have to know the real him um so yeah, I, I thought that that was an interesting point, but I definitely think he's actually responding. The decoration in the office reminded me of Umbridge. Yeah. yeah. We've got a defense against the dark arts professor whose, um, whose wall is lined with photos that reveal something about him or her. Uh, in Lockhart's case, it's countless photos of himself because he is he is a, a wizarding sociopath. And in Umbridge's 
case, it's a wall lined with kittens, right? Mm. The in the movie is so memorable, meowing sweetly. She's even, a psychopath. She is. She is. Even as Harry is doing his detention and digging scars into the back of his hand. And there it's there's this facade of cuddly sweetness that is actually sickeningly poisonous on the inside. And so in each case, the decorations of the office say something about the characters themselves. I, I even wondered, um, I sort of just had this like kind of creepy image in my head of Lockhart. Like, did he sign these photographs after hearing that Harry, you know, Colin Creevy say, will you sign this for me? And giving out signed photographs, like, did he go back to his office and like, creepily like hover over a pile of his own photos like signing them and like hanging them on the wall so that he looked like just as cool as Harry kind of creeped me out I could see this as one of those like dark remakes that they sometimes do like Gregory (laughs) Maguire wrote Wicked as a sort of dark like retelling of the Wizard of Oz and then we've got Gilderoy uh or like Magical Me by Gregory Maguire, um, the dark story of like this parallel timeline in Hogwarts that gives us what Lockhart was actually up to. I think that would be genuinely terrifying. Yeah. Like Lockhart closes the door and we see the real him. And I mean, it would be like Silence of the Lambs kind of stuff, like Hannibal Lecter style. Like, because I, I really do think he's a dark dude. Yeah. I mean, that is a scary thought. Uh, it's something I've never actually thought about before is what is he like when he closes the door and there's nobody to pretend around, there's nobody to front. And I mean, I, what, yeah, what is he like? Yeah. Does he maintain that smile or does he go into a deep, like, just... I get, I get the feeling that he is this now and he can't shut it off. You know, he feels like one of those characters that like has to be pristine and like perfect, even when he goes to bed and no one can see him because that. And now I've got this unshakable image that he closes and locks the door and the smile turns into a complete flat affect. Seriously creepy. That's what what I'm thinking. His pupils are dilated. He doesn't blink and he is numb. I can't have that. Psychologically and emotionally dead (laughs) until he has to perform again. (laughs) <laughs> now see in my in my head when he shuts the door his smile just gets wider oh no oh gosh <laughs> so we're talking so much worse <laughs> we're talking about the joker here is that what you're I, we, I hope nobody's listening to this at night i'm gonna have nightmares <laughs> i know <sighs> okay this is anyway. worse than alex showing us the illustrations of the little mandrake babies <laughs> those are fantastic anyway okay i said they were the stuff of nightmares last week and i mean it (laughs) they are they are okay so to to move us forward a little bit uh i i thought last time we talked that this was the moment we meet the basilisk when we're in lockhart's office for the first time and i was right this is the first time we hear the basilisk voice and I do not think that it is a coincidence. Mm. I think there is, like we've been conjecturing, a tie between Lockhart and the Basilisk that we're meant to get. Anyway, we hear the voice, uh, a voice to chill the bone marrow, a voice of breathtaking ice cold venom. 
venom is a really good word to use. And I, I just love that she like gave us that little hint right there. And then um, the basilisk says, or the voice says, come, come to me, let me rip you, let me tear you, let me kill you. And one thing that I thought was interesting, it was ter terrifying the first time you read it. Um, we never see that happen. Um, there's never an actual mauling from the basilisk, except when it bites Harry when they're battling. Um, but there's no eating of victims. Like they, they see the basilisk and they're, and they're petrified or, yeah. or, so, or the, and they're dead, or they see the basilisk through something and they're protected from the full blast and they're petrified. But yeah. the basilisk doesn't eat anybody. And maybe that's too dark for a children's book, but that's what he said. Yeah. Well, even the, what he says is really creepy. Right. Well, I hear Jim Dale's yeah. voice in my yeah. head and I seriously cannot even listen to that when I'm listening to it by myself at night. Anyway. What's interesting is we have to, we've already established that Ginny must have already um, gotten the diary. She's already deep into some Tom Riddle voodoo. She's clearly doing something with the chickens. <laughs> because Hagrid's got a half-plucked rooster on his table. And, I mean, we've already put those pieces together, but for the basilisk to be released, we've got one more step along the way. She's opened the cha the Chamber of Secrets, it seems, in, in some way. She's awakened the basilisk in some way, um, and he's moving about. It's interesting to me, though, uh, and I don't think there's a connection here, but it's just interesting, the juxtaposition of Harry's thoughts it must be nearly time to leave. Please let it be nearly time. And that's when the basilisk comes out. It's time to leave the chamber to be released into Hogwarts. Um, and we know that there's a connection between Harry and anything serpentine. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's just a, a sort of Maybe it's coincidental. I don't know that there's anything purposeful there because we know that Jenny is the instrument for the basilisk's awakening and release. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to me that you could almost read Harry's thoughts as having a summoning quality. I think you're right. We've got Lockhart's office when the basilisk is heard and when Harry responds to the basilisk, Lockhart, thinks he's talking to him there's oh. clearly a sort of melding of their of their characters going on legitimating i think our our discussion from the past two episodes that's linking those together um final observation yes the dialogue is just downright creepy mm -hmm. if you read that out loud it is just weird um what the basilisk actually <laughs> is vocalizing yeah also, how did, well, this is, again, uh, just a little bit getting into the weeds, but uh, when Harry says what, you know, loudly, and, and Lockhart thinks he's talking to him, how come he's not speaking in parcel tongue? You know, because a lot of times he's speaking, maybe he has to see the snake, you know, I, I don't know if that's what it he is. He does at this point. He, I think yeah, he, he obviously, doesn't even know he speaks parcel tongue. Well, I, that, that's my point, though, is that yeah. he hears the snake, and so because his mindset is in you know, parcel tongue, 
he should then speak out what, you know, but he doesn't. He says what, and Gilderoy Lockhart says, oh, you know, then responds to him. Um, yeah. So I guess maybe he just, he needs to see the snake in order to act. So I think it. that's the, what, what we see throughout this book and in the first one too, he has to be actually looking at a snake to slip into parcel time. Because there will be other scenes where he hears the basilisk in the walls and nobody right. else does. And he doesn't just break out into like <laughs> hissing and sputtering. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that would have been a giveaway a little earlier, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, we established that Lockhart does not hear the voice. And then um, he realizes what time it is. We've been here nearly four hours. And this detention started at eight. So at this point, it is midnight. And they're not and, even supposed to be out of their beds past like nine, yeah. right? Right, right. This is well, well after curfew. So he goes back to the common room. And half an hour later, now like 1230 at least, maybe closer to one, because it takes a minute to get you know back to your room and all that. Ron comes back. So Filch kept him for like five hours, rough. Mm -hmm. um, which I, you know, I, we did talk about how, how easy they got off, like when, uh, with this punishment, that's just one detention each, there was no points taken from Gryffindor, any of that. But these are pretty, like they ended up being pretty rough detentions. Like there was a lot of manual labor for Ron. There was a lot of, you know, whatever. Uh, maybe Harry's hand was cramping, but he had to deal with Lockhart for like four hours. That's that is a real grueling. thing. We all remember what it was like to try and write an essay in a in a time crunch and then your hand starts cramping in school. That's a real thing. Yeah, that's a real thing. So anyway, I, it ends up being a, a pretty decent punishment after all. These are very long detentions. And then we get the tidbit from Ron that he had another slug attack all over a special award for services to the school and had to, to clean that one a second time. Yep, he tells his friends about the voice he heard and they can't make any sense of it. And Harry tries to go to sleep, laying back in his bed, saying, I don't get it either. That's how we end this chapter. Well, I need to look back at something really quick. Sorry. Oh my goodness. It'll just take two seconds. <laughs> um, I just looked up the person he was writing the letter to, Gladys Gudgeon. A gudgeon is a small type of fish that's typically used for bait. Mm. And you were just talking about Lockhart fishing. Oh, okay, okay. Well, he's all right, all right. I did also look her up earlier, and this is not the only time we see her name. So she also will come up in book five because when... Uh, Lockhart is in St. Mungo's hospital. Uh, she is actually still writing him uh, in the hospital. And so, yeah, it, I mean, his, his grasp, even when he has- Lockhart's most meaningful relationship of his life, Gladys Gudgeon. Yes, so- but like, I just thought that was incredible as talking about the etymology of names and like how you were just saying that Lockhart is like literally fishing for followers or fishing for people that he can steal stories from. Yeah. And here, this lady, like J.K. Rowling, gave her a last name that is literally a type of fish. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. She's Do we think so there's anything that. to Veronica Smethley? I, I looked that one up, too. I, I didn't see anything. There's nothing that I could really find. So I'm obviously, looking. there's there's nothing there if I didn't find it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I looked her up, too, but I didn't see anything with her either. I wonder if there's 
meant to be something more like uh, onomatopoeia, like the sound of the name. Mm. Smethly is almost, it almost captures connotations of snivelly, like someone nipping at the heels of, of a famous person. So yeah, uh, I got more. The way that Colin got Creevy more, does to Harry. I got more of the meth in there than anything, and so it's more. You know, Lockhart's like a drug. Uh, no, that's way too far. That's so stretching it. Oh dear, that took a turn. <laughs> well, in response to Matt's last conjecture, yes, I'm yes. with Harry. I don't get it either. That's how the <laughs> chapter ends. <laughs> Uh, so Rowling does uh, the the characteristic author's trick of having the protagonist pondering the events of the chapter so that we will as well as we turn the page and look forward to the next meeting of the Harry Potter Book Club. That brings us to an end of this episode on Chapter 7 of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Thanks so much for sticking with us putting up with our banter, uh, listening to our hypotheses and pet theories, and also the sprinkling of profound insights that might have been thrown in there as well. As always, you can reach out to us with questions or comments at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. Uh, remember, uh, any, uh, any question that you have, if, if we think that it's insightful and it presses into good territory we'll be happy to read it on the air and offer our own thoughts uh, if you are listening on itunes or any of your other favorite podcasting platforms and you've got the option to rate and review we would love for you to leave an honest uh rating and review for this podcast it helps push us up the charts and let other people know about us you can also stay in touch on twitter and instagram at HPBC Podcast. And remember, Anguilla, we love you. <laughs> but for tonight, Mr. Jim managed. managed.